Dietrich Dixon from Lovely Nerd back with you for another Bible Thump. And uh, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And the reason is, is because I like the idea of letting Jesus speak to us. And I like the idea of us being, as human beings, being confronted by Jesus. And we're in this Advent season where it's a good time to let Jesus confront us. Um, because Advent is that time of year when I think we start contemplating um, Jesus, who he is, and why it's significant that he came to earth. We begin to contemplate this thing that's at the heart of the Christian faith, of our God coming from heaven to earth, from the realm of God to the realm of people, of human beings, to our earthly sphere, and dwelling among us and becoming one of us, being like us in every way, except, of course, without sin. But um, it's important, it's significant, it's not a secondary issue. I think it's absolutely essential and central to the Christian faith to have this understanding that we have a God who dwelt with us and among us and is for us. And one of the great things about the Gospels is as we read them, we find a Jesus who never quite meets our expectation. Now that might sound bad because like, I think we, we think of not having our expectations met as a bad thing, but sometimes our expectations are twisted. <laughs> like sometimes we have expectations, um, that, that are blown away. And I think that's what happens in the gospels is Jesus doesn't meet our standards. He's not the person that, um, so many people wanted him to be, and I think in a lot of ways, he's not exactly who we want him to be, but in a good way, in a way that confronts us and that forces us to see a far better reality as a possibility, a far better future, a far better Messiah, um, a far more beautiful Jesus that leads us to a far more beautiful view and understanding of our place on this planet um, as image bearers of of God. So, um, yeah, we're nearing the end of Mark's gospel, and as we do, Jesus talks more and more openly about his death. He's been doing that up to this point. He's been talking really openly about his death, but but the focus, I should say, rather, of Mark's gospel becomes more and more on the impending death of Jesus. So, here's what we find in Mark 14, starting in verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that the people so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. A woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on Jesus' head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can always do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, whether the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, I'm sorry, verse 9, Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. When they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So they started. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. <clears throat> All right. So um, I want to set the stage a little bit. Jesus has, up to this point, predicted the destruction of the temple at the hands of Israel's enemies, at the hands of the uh, of Rome. Um, and he's done it pretty boldly and pretty brashly, and uh, and even even went into the temple at one point prior to this and threw over the tables, uh, stopped the temple from working for a moment. Um, and here, I think in this passage, we're reminded that a similar fate awaits Jesus as awaits the temple. The temple's going to be destroyed, and it's going to be desecrated, and it's going to be this time when Israel's forced to accept that change is coming. Like, their lives are not going to be the same. And Jesus is making a statement by predicting it, saying that, like, the way we relate to God is going to change. We can't go back. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. They're going to burst. We have, you have to get new wineskins, right? You remember that parable? That parable is about the change that Jesus is bringing through his earthly ministry. That through Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection a radical shift's going to take place that forever changes the way that people relate to God. Okay? So that's the, that's the setting of, of this, is Jesus has just cast judgment on the temple. He's promised its destruction. And now we're reminded of Jesus' coming destruction. Um, now, of course, we know he's not destructed. destructed. He's not destroyed indefinitely, right? He rises from the dead. Um but from this point on in Mark's gospel, um, there's going to be a fixation in Mark's writing on the coming crucifixion of Jesus. And this is all the setting is also in terms of the Passover, right? Which was the celebration of Jewish freedom from slavery in Egypt, right? It's a celebration of, this, of, of the miraculous things that God did to step in and bring his people out of oppression and into their own nation, and into their own freedom, and into their own space where they could worship God freely and live in peace, right? Um, so the Passover is the setting for Jesus' final um, showdown, right, with the temple, and his final show, showdown with the cross. Um, so uh, Jesus is in conflict with a new Pharaoh, right, uh, with the forces of pagan rule in Rome and the forces of temple misuse and abuse, right? He confronted the temple, said, you guys have turned this thing that's supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. And so there's all these, uh, all these things going on behind the scenes that I think can help us understand the significance of this event. Um, but what I want to point out, I think, more than anything else, is that what's going on in this passage is shocking. It's not what we expect a Messiah to do after he's just triumphantly marched into Jerusalem um, as people are saying, Hosanna in the highest, and waving palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground to create a red carpet for him to waltz in on into Jerusalem, the center of Jewish, of Jewish life and religion and authority. Um, they thought... A king was coming to reign and to take care of Rome and to set Israel on the map again and to inaugurate a new era of God's favor upon the nation. That's what they hoped for. Um, and Jesus is doing all those things, but just not in any of the ways that people were ready for or would expect. Um, Jesus doesn't meet people's expectations in some really profound but good ways. And so, um, yeah, after 
triumphantly waltzing into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey and all and, and so forth. Um, what would we expect? We expect Jesus to like. I think most people in in Jesus' day would have expected him to like start building a movement, start recruiting followers, um, do something to free Israel from its oppressors. To, I mean, just like meetings or or like. Uh, speeches to rally the troops, right? We think of moments like William Wallace, uh, you know, and Braveheart going like, they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. I mean, that's what I think we expect. I think that's what most people would have expected. But instead, he's eating um, a meal and reclining at the table, the the, the Bible says, at the, the house of a leper, Simon the leper. Um, so not exactly you know, the key influencer in Jerusalem. The Simon the Leper was not a guy with a lot of Twitter followers or Instagram followers. Um, he wasn't, he didn't have a TikTok that blew up, right? That's not Simon the Leper. He's not an important person, but that's exactly where Jesus is. Hanging out with a leper, the moments before, um, moments after, sorry, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his judgment upon the temple. Um, pretty weird, <laughs> right? And again, it's just Jesus doesn't, he's not who we, he's not always who we expect him to be, and he doesn't operate the way we would expect him to. Um, we have an enigmatic savior who doesn't always do what we think he should do. Jesus doesn't always behave according to our expectations. Um, and all around this, we see these, this theme of opposition to him, in part because of that, but also in part because Jesus really was shaking things up, right? Um, this proclamation of the temple going to be destroyed was a was was too much, I think, for some people. Um, and so Judas joins in the plan to betray him. Um, the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to kill him. So that their idea was like, how can we put Jesus out in such a way? How can we take him out in such a way that doesn't get us in trouble with the crowds because we don't want to cause a riot. Like we don't want to, we don't want to be on the wrong side of the crowds, but we do want to make sure we get rid of Jesus because he's stepping on our toes and, and our authority and <clears throat> saying things that just don't jive with us as those who are in many ways, like in charge of, of Jewish religious life and relationship with the temple. Right. Um, so here's three things I want to say about this passage, uh, and in terms of how we relate to Jesus as we read the Gospels and as we do life in this time of year, uh, when we're celebrating, celebrating Advent, celebrate, celebrating the coming of the King, celebrating God's time with us in human flesh. Um, so first I want to challenge you to let Jesus surprise you. I've already kind of said this, I won't belabor this point, but, um, as you read the Bible, as you read the Gospels in particular, um, let Jesus surprise you. Don't expect him to operate the way that you think he should. And pay attention to who Jesus spends time with, what he does, how he operates. All of that matters. And let's not assume we ha- we have him pinned down. Let's not assume we understand Jesus. I think that's a big temptation in our current cultural moment is to assume we know who exactly who Jesus is and exactly what he would do in any given moment in any situation. And so much of that is tied to like all kinds of other um, pressures and ideas that are floating around our lives, like our politics, our um, our socioeconomic status, like 
how much you have or how much you don't have, all those things influence who we expect Jesus to be. And I just want to say, like, make an effort to let go of some of that. Then read the Bible and say, okay, who really are you, Jesus? And let him shock you and surprise you and be someone far greater, maybe far different than who you've assumed him to be. All right, second thing I want to challenge you to do is let Jesus confront you. Um, Jesus confronts some of his own disciples in this in this in this story because they don't understand why he would let this woman give him such an expensive gift. Essentially, like she, in their minds, wastes this uh, jar of expensive perfume to anoint Jesus, um, and they're going like, "What? This could have been used so much more profitably." Um, and so Jesus confronts them and says, you don't get it. You don't get how beautiful this act of worship really is. And you also don't get what she's actually doing. She, I don't think she knew what she was doing, but Jesus says, actually what she's done is she's anointed me for burial. Um, and so Jesus once again confronts them with this reality that he's going to die. And that his suffering and death is actually good news, even though they had a hard time seeing that. And I think sometimes we have a hard time seeing that. Um, but what ways do you need Jesus to confront your expectations? What ways do you need Jesus to confront your priorities? Uh, what you value, what you treasure, um, you know, whether it's kingdom-minded things or it's things like politics or being right or um, whatever it is, let him confront you and ask for him to reorder your priorities, your values, your way of thinking to come in line with his kingdom priorities. Uh, third thing I want to challenge you to do is let Jesus embrace other people. That sounds really simple, but why would we ever keep anyone from Jesus? Um, well, that's exactly what the scribes and the chief priests were doing in this moment, and Judas is about to do, and even the disciples were in a way doing it because they didn't want this woman to worship Jesus in this extravagant way that they thought was out of bounds. You see, the minute we learn, as human beings, I think, the minute we learn something new, uh, we instinctively, I think, because we're broken people, we instinctively look for ways to build fences around that knowledge, uh, to control the narrative. Um, anything and everything we can do to dictate the experience of others and to dictate the terms of how people will experience this knowledge. Um, so coming to faith in Jesus is a beautiful thing, but we can immediately, once we come to faith in Jesus, we can start telling other people how exactly we think they need to relate to Jesus. And here's what you can and can't do. Here's what you can and can't believe. Here's how you can and can't operate. Um, now, I'm not saying that all of that kind of thinking is out of bounds. Like, there are boundaries, I think, that the Bible sets for us about things we, we, really, we really should believe and that we should reject. Like, we should reject the oppression of other people. We should reject actions that diminish people's dignity. Those are some obvious ones. Um, we should believe certain things about about Jesus, I think. Um, Paul said, if anyone believe, preaches a gospel, gospel contrary to the one you've received, um, you know, let him be accursed, which is a harsh way of saying, like, don't buy it and don't give in to it. So there are bounds, and I, don't hear me saying that there's not, that there are, aren't things we should submit ourselves to. There absolutely are. Um, but uh, when people come to Jesus, do we tell them, oh, hey, you're not doing it right? Um, are we 
looking at others' worship and saying, oh, it's not like mine, so you must be doing something wrong. Or are we learning from others? Are we willing to um, see the exuberant worship of other people and say, what can, I, what can I gain from that? People who worship differently than us, people who seek God differently than us, um, are we making an effort to understand them? What can we learn from other people? Are we letting other people embrace Jesus, or are we trying to be the ones that are in control? Looking for our little slice of power, our little slice of control. Um, let go of that. That's Jesus' message to his own disciples in this moment. Let go of that desire. Let the little children come to me, right? Let people worship Jesus in their own exuberant ways. Um, this isn't this isn't a passage about that should dictate how we think about money necessarily. That's not what this is about. Um, this is about about letting Jesus confront us and letting him surprise us and letting him embrace the people around us. Pretty cool, right? I think it's a very cool story. Um, I love confronting Jesus and letting him surprise me in the Gospels. Um, I think it's really exciting and really encouraging, and I hope it is for you too. Thanks again, and we'll see you again next week.